Domitian, Part One, from the Lives of the Twelve Caesars by Gaius Suetonius Tranquillus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Leeson. The Lives of the Twelve Caesars by Gaius Suetonius Tranquillus. Translated by Alexander Thompson and edited by T. Forrester. Domitian, Part One, Paragraphs One through Ten. Domitian was born upon the ninth of the calends of November, when his father was consul elect, being to enter upon his office the month following, in the sixth region of the city, at the pomegranate, in the house which he afterwards converted into a temple of the Flavian family. He is said to have spent the time of his youth in so much want and infamy that he had not one piece of plate belonging to him, and it is well known that Clodius Polio, a man of praetorian rank, against whom there is a poem of Nero's extant, entitled Lucio, kept a note in his handwriting, which he sometimes produced, in which Domitian made an assignation with him for the foulest purposes. Some, likewise, have said that he prostituted himself to Nerva, who succeeded him. In the war with Vitellius, he fled into the capital with his uncle Sabinus, and a part of the troops they had in the city. But the enemy breaking in, and the temple being set on fire, he hid himself all night with the sacristan, and next morning, assuming the disguise of a worshipper of Isis, and mixing with the priests of that idle superstition, he got over the Tiber, with only one attendant, to the house of a woman who was the mother of one of his schoolfellows, and lurked there so close that, though the enemy who were at his heels searched very strictly after him, they could not discover him. At last, after the success of his party, appearing in public and being unanimously saluted by the title of Caesar, he assumed the office of praetor of the city, with consular authority, but in fact had nothing but the name, for the jurisdiction he transferred to his next colleague. He used, however, his absolute power so licentiously that even then he plainly discovered what sort of prince he was likely to prove. Not to go into details, after he had made free with the wives of many men of distinction, he took Domitia Longina from her husband, Aelius Lamia, and married her, and in one day disposed of about twenty offices in the city and the provinces, upon which Vespasian said several times he wondered he did not send him a successor too. He likewise designed an expedition into Gaul and Germany, without the least necessity for it, and contrary to the advice of all his father's friends, and this he did only with the view of equaling his brother in military achievements and glory. But for this he was severely reprimanded, and that he might the more effectually be reminded of his age and position, was made to live with his father, and his litter had to follow his father's and brother's carriage as often as they went abroad, but he attended them in their triumph for the conquest of Judea, mounted on a white horse. Of the six consulships which he held, only one was ordinary, and that he obtained by the session and interest of his brother. He greatly affected a modest behavior, and, above all, a taste for poetry, insomuch that he rehearsed his performances in public, though it was an art he had formerly little cultivated, and which he afterwards despised and abandoned. 
Devoted, however, as he was at this time to poetical pursuits, yet when Vologesus, king of the Parthians, desired succors against the Alani, with one of Vespasian's sons to command them, he labored hard to procure for himself that appointment. But the scheme proving abortive, he endeavored by presents and promises to engage other kings of the East to make a similar request. After his father's death, he was for some time in doubt whether he should not offer the soldiers a donative double to that of his brother, and made no scruple of saying frequently that he had been left his partner in the empire, but that his father's will had been fraudulently set aside. From that time forward, he was constantly engaged in plots against his brother, both publicly and privately, until, falling dangerously ill, he ordered all his attendants to leave him, under pretense of his being dead, before he really was so, and, at his decease, paid him no other honor than that of enrolling him amongst the gods. And he often, both in speeches and edicts, carped at his memory by sneers and insinuations. In the beginning of his reign, he used to spend daily an hour by himself in private, during which time he did nothing else but catch flies and stick them through the body with a sharp pin. When someone therefore inquired whether anyone was with the emperor, it was significantly answered by Vibius Crispus, not so much as a fly. Soon after his advancement, his wife Domitia, by whom he had a son in his second consulship, and whom the year following he complimented with the title of Augusta, being desperately in love with Paris, the actor, he put her away. But within a short time afterwards, being unable to bear the separation, he took her again, under pretense of complying with the people's importunity. During some time there was in his administration a strange mixture of virtue and vice, until at last his virtues themselves degenerated into vices. Being, as we may reasonably conjecture concerning his character, inclined to avarice through want, and to cruelty through fear. He frequently entertained the people with most magnificent and costly shows, not only in the amphitheater, but the circus, where, besides the usual races with chariots drawn by two or four horses abreast, he exhibited the representation of an engagement between both horse and foot, and a sea-fight in the amphitheater. The people were also entertained with the chase of wild beasts and the combat of gladiators, even in the night-time, by torchlight. Nor did men only fight in these spectacles, but women also. He constantly attended at the games given by the questors, which had been disused for some time, but were revived by him, and upon those occasions always gave the people the liberty of demanding two pairs of gladiators out of his own school, who appeared last in court uniforms. Whenever he attended the shows of gladiators, there stood at his feet a little boy dressed in scarlet, with a prodigiously small head, with whom he used to talk very much, and sometimes seriously. We are assured that he was overheard asking him if he knew for what reason he had in the late appointment made Metius Rufus governor of Egypt. He presented the people with naval fights, performed by fleets almost as numerous as those usually employed in real engagements, making a vast lake near the Tiber, and building seats round it. And he witnessed them himself during a very heavy rain. He likewise celebrated the secular games, reckoning not from the year in which they had been exhibited by Claudius, but from the time of Augustus's celebration of them. In these, upon the day of the Circensian sports, 
in order to have a hundred races performed, he reduced each course from seven rounds to five. He likewise instituted, in honor of Jupiter Capitolinus, a solemn contest in music to be performed every five years, besides horse racing and gymnastic exercises, with more prizes than are at present allowed. There was also a public performance in elocution, both Greek and Latin, and besides the musicians who sung to the harp, there were others who played concerted pieces or solos, without vocal accompaniment. Young girls also ran races in the stadium, at which he presided in his sandals, dressed in a purple robe, made after the Grecian fashion, and wearing upon his head a golden crown bearing the effigies of Jupiter, Juno, and Minerva. With the flamen of Jupiter, and the college of priests sitting by his side in the same dress, excepting only that their crowns had also his own image on them. He celebrated also upon the Alban Mount every year the festival of Minerva, for whom he had appointed a college of priests, out of which were chosen by lot persons to preside as governors over the college, who were obliged to entertain the people with extraordinary chases of wild beasts and stage plays, besides contests for prizes in oratory and poetry. He thrice bestowed upon the people a largesse of three hundred sesterces each man, and at a public show of gladiators a very plentiful feast. At the festival of the Seven Hills he distributed large hampers of provisions to the senatorian and equestrian orders, and small baskets to the common people, and encouraged them to eat by setting them the example. The day after, he scattered among the people a variety of cakes and other delicacies to be scrambled for, and on the greater part of them falling amidst the seats of the crowd, he ordered five hundred tickets to be thrown into each range of benches belonging to the senatorian and equestrian orders. He rebuilt many noble edifices which had been destroyed by fire, and amongst them the capital, which had been burnt down a second time but all the inscriptions were in his own name, without the least mention of the original founders. He likewise erected a new temple in the capital to Jupiter Custos, and a forum, which is now called Nervas, as also the temple of the Flavian family, a stadium, an odium, and an amachia, out of the stone dug from which the sides of the Circus Maximus, which had been burnt down, were rebuilt. He undertook several expeditions, some from choice, and some from necessity. That against the Cati was unprovoked, but that against the Sarmatians was necessary, an entire legion, with its commander, having been cut off by them. He sent two expeditions against the Dacians, the first upon the defeat of Oppius Sabinus, a man of consular rank, and the other upon that of Cornelius Fuscus, prefect of the Praetorian cohorts, to whom he had entrusted the conduct of that war. After several battles with the Cati and Daci, he celebrated a double triumph. But for his successes against the Sarmatians, he only bore in procession the laurel crown to Jupiter Capitolinus. The civil war, begun by Lucius Antonius, governor of Upper Germany, he quelled, without being obliged to be personally present at it, with remarkable good fortune. For, at the very moment of joining battle, the Rhine suddenly thawing, the troops of the barbarians which were ready to join L. Antonius were prevented from crossing the river. Of this victory he had noticed by some presages, before the messengers who brought the news of it arrived. For upon the very day the battle was fought, a splendid eagle spread its wings round his statue at Rome, making most joyful cries, and shortly after a rumor became common that Antonius was slain, 
Nay, many positively affirmed that they saw his head brought to the city. He made many innovations in common practices. He abolished the sportula and revived the old practice of regular suppers. To the four former parties in the Circensian games, he added two new, who were gold and scarlet. He prohibited the players from acting in the theater, but permitted them the practice of their art in private houses. He forbade the castration of males, and reduced the price of the eunuchs who were still left in the hands of the dealers in slaves. On the occasion of a great abundance of wine, accompanied by a scarcity of corn, supposing that the tillage of the ground was neglected for the sake of attending too much to the cultivation of vineyards, he published a proclamation forbidding the planting of any new vines in Italy, and ordering the vines in the provinces to be cut down, nowhere permitting more than one half of them to remain. But he did not persist in the execution of this project. Some of the greatest offices he conferred upon his freedmen and soldiers. He forbade two legions to be quartered in the same camp, and more than a thousand sesterces to be deposited by any soldier with the standards, because it was thought that Lucius Antonius had been encouraged in his late project by the large sum deposited in the military chest by the two legions which he had in the same winter quarters. He made an addition to the soldiers' pay of three gold pieces a year. In the administration of justice he was diligent and assiduous, and frequently sat in the forum out of course to cancel the judgments of the court of the one hundred which had been procured through favor or interest. He occasionally cautioned the judges of the court of recovery to beware of being too ready to admit claims for freedom brought before them. He set a mark of infamy upon judges who were convicted of taking bribes, as well as upon their assessors. He likewise instigated the tribunes of the people to prosecute a corrupt edile for extortion, and to desire the Senate to appoint judges for his trial. He likewise took such effectual care in punishing magistrates of the city, and governors of provinces, guilty of malversation, that they never were at any time more moderate or more just. Most of these, since his reign, we have seen prosecuted for crimes of various kinds. Having taken upon himself the reformation of the public manners, he restrained the license of the populace in sitting promiscuously with the knights in the theatre. Scandalous libels, published to defame persons of rank of either sex, he suppressed, and inflicted upon their authors a mark of infamy. He expelled a man of Questorian rank from the Senate for practicing mimicry and dancing. He debarred infamous women the use of litters, as also the right of receiving legacies or inheriting estates. He struck out of the list of judges a Roman knight for taking again his wife whom he had divorced and prosecuted for adultery. He condemned several men of the senatorian and equestrian orders upon the Scantinian law. The lewdness of the Vestal Virgins, which had been overlooked by his father and brother, he punished severely, but in different ways, viz., offenses committed before his reign with death and those since its commencement according to ancient custom. For to the two sisters called Osolati, he gave liberty to choose the mode of death which they preferred, and banished their paramours. But Cornelia, the president of the Vestals, who had formerly been acquitted upon a charge of incontinence, being a long time after again prosecuted and condemned, he ordered to be buried alive, and her gallants to be whipped to death with rods in the comitium excepting only a man of praetorian rank, to whom, because he confessed the fact while the case was dubious, and it was not established against him, though the witnesses had been put to the torture, he granted the favor of banishment. And to preserve pure and undefiled the reverence due to the gods, 
he ordered the soldiers to demolish a tomb, which one of his freedmen had erected for his son out of the stones designed for the temple of Jupiter Capitolinus, and to sink in the sea the bones and relics buried in it. Upon his first succeeding to power, he felt such an abhorrence for the shedding of blood, that before his father's arrival in Rome, calling to mind the verse of Virgil, Impia quam caesis gens est epulata juvensis, ere impious man, restrained from blood in vain, began to feast on flesh of bullocks slain, he designed to have published a proclamation to forbid the sacrifice of oxen. Before his accession to the imperial authority, and during some time afterwards, he scarcely ever gave the least grounds for being suspected of covetousness or avarice, but on the contrary he often afforded proofs, not only of his justice, but his liberality. To all about him he was generous even to profusion, and recommended nothing more earnestly to them than to avoid doing anything mean. He would not accept the property left him by those who had children. He also set aside a legacy bequeathed by the will of Ruscus Caepio, who had ordered his heir to make a present yearly to each of the senators upon their first assembling. He exonerated all those who had been under prosecution from the treasury for above five years before, and would not suffer suits to be renewed, unless it was done within a year, and on condition that the prosecutor should be banished if he could not make good his cause. The secretaries of the quaestors having engaged in trade, according to custom, but contrary to the Clodian law, he pardoned them for what was past. Such portions of land as had been left when it was divided amongst the veteran soldiers, he granted to the ancient possessors, as belonging to them by prescription. He put a stop to false prosecutions in the exchequer, by severely punishing the prosecutors, and this saying of his was much taken notice of, that a prince who does not punish informers encourages them. But he did not long persevere in this course of clemency and justice, although he sooner fell into cruelty than into avarice. He put to death a scholar of Paris, the pantomimic, though a minor, and then sick, only because, both in person and the practice of his art, he resembled his master, as he did likewise Hermogenes of Tarsus for some oblique reflections in his history, crucifying, besides, the scribes who had copied the work. One who was a master of a band of gladiators, happening to say that a thrax was a match for a marmillo, but not so for the exhibitor of the games, he ordered him to be dragged from the benches into the arena, and exposed to the dogs, with this label put upon him, a parmularian guilty of talking impiously. He put to death many senators, and amongst them several men of consular rank. In this number were Civica Serialis, when he was proconsul in Africa, Salvidianus Orphetus, and Asilius Glabrio in exile, under the pretense of their planning to revolt against him. The rest he punished upon very trivial occasions, as Aelius Lamia for some jocular expressions which were of old date and perfectly harmless, because, upon his commending his voice after he had taken his wife from him, he replied, Alas, I hold my tongue. And when Titus advised him to take another wife, he answered him thus, What, have you a mind to marry? Salvius Cocceanus was condemned to death for keeping the birthday of his uncle Otho, the emperor. Metius Pomposianus, because he was commonly reported to have an imperial nativity, and to carry about with him a map of the world upon vellum, with the speeches of kings and generals extracted out of Titus Livius, 
and for giving his slaves the name of Mago and Hannibal, Salustius Luculus, lieutenant in Britain, for suffering some lances of a new invention to be called Luculian, and Junius Rusticus, for publishing a treatise in praise of Pytius Thracia and Helvidius Priscus, and calling them both most upright men. Upon this occasion he likewise banished all the philosophers from the city and Italy. He put to death the younger Helvidius for writing a farce in which, under the character of Paris and Oinoni, he reflected upon his having divorced his wife, and also Flavius Sabinus, one of his cousins, because, upon his being chosen at the consular election to that office, the public crier had, by a blunder, proclaimed him to the people not consul, but emperor. Becoming still more savage after his success in the civil war, he employed the utmost industry to discover those of the adverse party who absconded. Many of them he racked with a new invented torture, inserting fire through their private parts, and from some he cut off their hands. It is certain that only two of any note were pardoned, a tribune who wore the narrow stripe, and a centurion who, to clear themselves from the charge of being concerned in any rebellious project, proved themselves to have been guilty of prostitution, and consequently incapable of exercising any influence either over the general or the soldiers. End of Domitian, Part 1